morning, ladies. Um, so our, it's sort of sad to me that we're coming to the end, that we're coming to the end of our uh, Samuel here. I mean, it seems like we have had studied quite a bit, but yet it seems like it's ending rather quickly. But I did have one announcement here. Uh, if, I don't know if you saw out there the Hope for Christmas. There's a little flyer that, that you can get. Uh, I'm not going to go into much detail about it, but it is something that they have here once a year. Uh, mainly, it's, it's a mission of outreach. We'd like you to invite neighbors, friends. You can bring your mother. <laughs> things that uh, someone that you can enjoy the evening with. Uh, this is going to be Friday, December 1st. And uh, Janine is going to be putting a video out either tonight or tomorrow to give you more information about that, okay? But it is an outreach, so feel free to invite whoever you would like. And I believe it's there's a $10 charge that goes with that. Okay. All right, so let's just go before the Lord. Um, Father, we just praise you and thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that we can come before you. Uh, through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask now that you would be with Sarah, Lord, and you would give her direction by your Holy Spirit, that you would give her peace that comes from you and you alone, and Lord, that uh, what is said today would be pleasing in your sight, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Hope everyone has been uh, studying this week, enjoying your research, enjoying your study. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, as I know last week we had a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right in. We have come uh, from chapter 24, where David has had an opportunity to take over Saul, and instead he has spared Saul's life. And Saul seems to repent, right? Like he has this grand um, apology, these grand words, more on that later, right? But where we find ourselves today, the beginning of chapter 25, is with the end of an era. So I invite you to turn to chapter 25. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Samuel, the faithful servant of the Lord, has died, is mourned, and is buried and it might seem like this next verse, verse 2, just shifts focus really quickly. But what I think we can take comfort here is knowing that the work of the Lord does not rest on any one man. Thank goodness. The Lord is gracious to invite us into his work, but he has plans beyond any one person, beyond any one generation. And part of his faithfulness is played out in raising up people in the times that he needs them, in the places, and across generations. So now verse 2, we're going to turn our attention to David. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. 
Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at your hand to your servants and to your son David. So sheep shearing time is essentially a harvest time, and it is celebrated with a feast. This would have been a time that Nabal would have been expected to have resources to share. He would have been supposedly in a joyful giving mood. However, his name means fool or senseless. And it came to mean failure. Most likely, this is not a name that was given to him by his parents. This was most likely earned as he grew into a man, as, he, as the people interacted with him. This is what he came to be known as. And in contrast, Abigail means my father's joy. And we see, we're already starting to see a difference between these two people. How they were matched up, I'm sure, was through some type of arrangement. But they are very different people. And now, be careful with what David is doing here. It is not a shakedown. He has provided a service, a valuable and honor service, honorable service that would have been reasonable to expect to be compensated for it. David and his men relied on the generosity of people in the area to compensate them for their services of protection. After all, we've seen that David has good skills in this area. He has fought off beasts to protect flocks. He has fought off Goliath. And so we see this transaction demonstrated by his timing. David goes to ask for this compensation after the task is complete, after Nabal would have received the harvest from his sheep. So he sent messengers, not bringing his whole camp, and instructed them to greet him in peace. He did not exact a price, but relied on the opportunity for generosity that was Nabal's at this time of feasting. Verse 9. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. So don't be fooled here. Nabal says, who, who is the son of Jesse? Who is David? But he surely would have known. First of all, David has killed Goliath already. That story would have been made known. But even on the off chance that he hadn't heard about that already, he's the one that brings up, who is the son of Jesse? He knows where he has come from. And in fact, he's showing that not only does he know who he is, he's just refusing to take responsibility for what he should have as an obligation to David in return for his protection. He's looking to deflect his own wrongdoing by accusing David of being the servant who is unfaithful. He's aligning himself with Saul, saying, I know whose servant you are. I see that you're running from him, and I'm on Saul's team. So Nabal goes on to show where his heart is. My water, my bread, my meat, my shearers. He is only concerned about his own possession. And not only is he steeped in greed, but I think there's something to be seen here about this, the strong ego that he has here. This is a hit on his ego, and he doesn't want to lose anything to anyone that he doesn't have responsibility for. But he does have responsibility that he's trying to shirk by calling out David for what is supposed wrongdoing. But lest we find ourselves looking down a little too harshly on Nabal, I want to ask you this. How often do we look at what we have been entrusted with as 
ours instead of the Lord's. And we should think of this in terms of money and resources, but I also want to call your attention to something else. What about talents? What about people and relationships? We find ourselves saying things like, my husband and my children and my best friend. Are we willing to share the attentions of those who we think their loyalty should belong to us? It's possible that Nabal was blessed for such a time that he could bless David, David and his men, but he chose to hold tightly to everything himself. So David receives this insult and immediately turns to revenge. Suit up, everybody. Let's wipe them off the map. It's interesting to see how easily he was able to spare Saul just one chapter before this, even as he's trying to literally murder him. But when David is insulted by someone he perceives as his equal, he's not so quick to offer grace. It could just be that this is one of the places where we still see David as having human tendencies. So often we find ourselves reacting instead of responding. And when that happens, there's more to explore than maybe just what interaction is in front of us. To summarize verses 14 through 31 for time's sake, some of Nabal's men tell Abigail what has happened, and she jumps into action. Whatever time has been lost with Nabal, she's going to make up for it. She prepares loads of food and provisions for David and his men and sets out herself to make it right. And when she finds him, she approaches with humility and respect. She takes the blame of Nabal on herself and appeals for David's mercy. Abigail did what Nabal should have done. And in fact, the, the fact that she had all of these resources readily available at her disposal shows that he easily could have shared with David and chose not to. David and his men must have been surprised to see this party of gifts coming toward him with this beautiful woman bowing in humility before them. And as she speaks, she speaks intelligently and wisely. She uses the imagery of a sling, something that we know David is familiar with, right? We know that David is familiar with the wonders that God can do with one. Her loving correction does not tear him down, but instead reminds him of whose he is and who he has responsibility to. She speaks to him with dignity, and though her words have a significant weight of admonishment, she reminds him of the future that is at stake and asks him to remember her when the Lord has fulfilled his promises. She knows the Lord is good. She knows that the Lord will make good on his promises, and she says, remember me. Now think about how Abigail needs to remind David of these things to set his perspective back in the right place. And what we might know of David's life to come, how many times is he corrected by advisors not to follow through on some plan that he's hatching at the time? It's, it's several times, right? He has advisors all through his life that are telling him and admonishing him, and warning him, and correcting him. What is the posture of his heart as he receives that wisdom? And how does that compare to Saul's response to correction? Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation from my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. 
How often do we praise God when he sends someone to set us straight? Even if we receive that person with respect, do we turn and praise God for them? Do we view the correction of the Lord as a blessing? It is indeed part of his ministry of reconciliation, not in spite of it. But quite often we fear the correction because we fear the condemnation that we perceive comes with it. We don't want the distance that is created by our need for correction, but in those moments we have failed to see that the correction of the Lord and the mercy of the Lord are inseparable. And because of Jesus, condemnation is gone. We are free not only to welcome, but to invite and praise God for the blessing of his discipline when it comes. Verse 36, And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants, of Abigail came, the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. Did you notice that God went ahead and did the thing that was labeled wrongdoing for David to have done? David is saying he was saved from doing wrong, saved from blood guilt, but then God does indeed take Nabal's life. What's happening there? Is God doing wrong? Well, what, if, what we know of his character says no. But first of all, God dealt with Nabal specifically, but he did not wipe out the whole household the way David was planning to do. David was planning to avenge himself instead of relying on God. And haven't we seen that, ch that uh, theme chase us through this whole book? We need to stop trying to save ourselves. We need to be relying on the Lord. David had already been doing this pretty well when it came to Saul, and this could have just been like a last straw for him. Either way, this was not a defensive move that he was planning. It was for payback. And God sent a wise messenger to stop him. Nabal, on the other hand, has no wise messenger to keep him from living up to his name. Instead of recognizing that his insult to David would put him at risk, he proceeds to throw himself a party, eating, drinking, get ma getting merry, and blind in the face of imminent danger. It's possible that Jesus actually had Nabal in mind when he told the parable of the rich man in Luke 12. Either way, it says that his heart died within him and he became like stone. One way of interpreting these words is that perhaps he had a stroke or some kind of thing that would incapacitate him for a few days until the Lord did indeed strike him dead. However, what this also could be referring to is that the heart is the seat of courage, and Nabal had none. 
And so in this moment, when Abigail recounts her story for him, it could be that his heart is hardened the way Pharaoh's was in Exodus. Either way, the Lord does indeed take his life just 10 days later, avenging his disobedience, his greed, his dishonor. And when David hears of this, he rejoices in the Lord's work. It seems a little strange to rejoice over someone's death, but let's frame it in this way, that I think we should view it that David is rejoicing over the faithfulness of the Lord. David sends for Abigail to make her his wife, and she goes not just willingly, but joyfully and ready to serve. Here's where things get a little bit weird. Verse 44 reminds us that David already had a wife, Michael, daughter of Saul, but that Saul had taken Michael back from David and given her in marriage to someone else. Now, it also says that at the same time he marries Abigail, that David also takes another wife, Ahinoam. And we've seen that name before, too. She could very well be Saul's wife. Saul's wife is named Ahinoam, so it's possible that David is asserting himself as a leader in such a way to have married the queen. This is hinted at in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, where Nathan is admonishing David for his actions, and it says, I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. Now, we don't know for sure, but there's some interesting something or other happening there I wanted to call your attention to. Let's move to chapter 26. Looking at verses 1 through 14, even though he seemed to repent of his ways back in chapter 24, Saul continues to pursue David. David sends out scouts, and they confirm what's happening. So David sets out and finds where they are camped. Now imagine being David, looking out over this camp where Saul is asleep. The betrayal that he sees. All of those words from chapter 24, they were all for show. The apology, the repentance, the words of loyalty, they all simply served as a means to an end for Saul. He had no true remorse. He had no intent to follow through on his oath. And David is standing there deciding what to do. Didn't we talk briefly back in chapter 7 about how Samuel had instructed Israel in both inward and outward repentance? We are seeing that contrast play itself out right here between Saul and David. Saul, when caught by David, makes a grand speech, a big apology with loyalty, but he has not actually turned his heart from the wrongdoing. Now consider just a few minutes earlier when David is corrected by Abigail, how he demonstrated the true turning away from his plan to destroy Nabal and his house. David is indeed a flawed man, just like Saul. But the difference here is David's willingness to be led, his willingness to turn from wickedness and a genuine desire to honor the Lord. So David and one of his men, Abishai, enter the camp while Saul and his men are asleep. Now, if you're wondering, how did they get all the way in there without anyone noticing? Not a single person woke up. We don't have a single light sleeper here. But this sleep is likened to that that God caused to fall on Adam when he removed a rib and created Eve. So think of this as more like God's general anesthesia type of sleep. No one was going to notice anything. So Abishai immediately says, let me take his life. But David stops him. No one is to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed one, not even the next king who has already been chosen. David has escaped this spear multiple times, and this is his chance to end the chase. 
again. But instead, David instructs him to take Saul's spear, which is a symbol of death, and his jug of water, a symbol of life. His repeated refusal to harm Saul is a demonstration of his character. It's not just a one-time choice. We see this over and over. Saul's obedience, in contrast, is occasional and showy at best, but David's integrity glows even under this cover of night. After all, Abishai is the only other person who would even know, and he's the one offering to do the killing. But that's not really the point. Honoring the Lord, honoring the Lord's anointed one, even when it means prolonging a difficult circumstance, is the kind of obedience of David. So they leave, and when they are a safe distance away, David calls out to Abner, the commander of the army. David had done Abner's job of protecting Saul, and he is calling out to bring his attention to exactly what had happened and who had been there. In verses 17 through 20, Saul recognizes David's voice calling out to Abner, and David charges him directly. Why are you still pursuing me? What am I guilty of? Who is sending you? And David says, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. David's request here is an honorable one. Don't let me die away from the presence of the Lord. Now, we know that God is always with us, and David himself will later say in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So what he's asking is not that God would somehow be separated from him. What he's saying is, I don't want to be scattered from the promised land. I don't want to be scattered from the people of God. Please don't take me away from where the promises of God will one day be fulfilled. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly, and I've made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. David returns to Saul the spear, the symbol of death, but not the jug of water, the symbol of life. Not only so, David is not taking the spear back to him. He says, here it is. Send one of your men to come get it. Even as he is ex extending grace to Saul, he is not willing to put himself back in harm's way. We, therefore, can extend grace to those who have wronged us, but that grace does not require us to reopen ourselves to the same access and vulnerability that we previously had with that person. We can hold our boundaries in place even as we offer grace to those who have inflicted the pain, even up to the point of Saul chasing David down to murder him. But I want you to hear this because I think so often we have conflated love and mercy 
with unfettered access and unchecked opportunity for additional pain. Check back into verse 24, where David says, As your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. David is not sitting back, waiting for the day when his life will become precious to Saul once again. He doesn't have to. He has placed his trust in a creator who values his life. He doesn't need Saul to validate him because the Lord's esteem will cover whatever Saul's lacks. I'm going to say that goes for us too. We do not need our oppressors to validate us because the Lord's esteem is enough to cover whatever theirs lacks. We can rest in the identity of a freedom that was forged on a cross and covered with the blood and secured by the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. The end of chapter 26 is the last time that David and Saul will see each other, but they don't know that yet. Chapter 27 opens, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, and he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and he, is his, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. This chapter opens with David letting discouragement and fear and doubt cloud his perspective. This language is interesting because it contrasts with what he has said about the Lord fighting his battles. He is now despairing that Saul will eventually overtake him. So he flees to Gath, which is also curious because that's where Goliath was from. That's also where he had fled in chapter 21, and they recognized him immediately. This is the king of Israel. So he had already convinced them that he was insane. He convinced, do you remember this story? He had convinced them that he was a madman and he left. So now he's back, and it's curious to me, what exactly is he expecting? (laughs) But he goes back to live with Achish, and just for a minute, it looks like he might get to live in peace. Saul has stopped pursuing him. All of his men and his wives, David gets to take a break here. But we know that decisions made from fear and doubt sometimes do bring temporary comfort. If we find ourselves fighting against a temptation, maybe just to give in a little bit, it will likely feel better just for a minute, for a little while. It's kind of like a mosquito bite that just happened, right? So like when you get a mosquito bite, you don't see the bump right away, and you might just like scratch it, one, one first itch. And after you scratch it that first time, it, you realize pretty quickly like, oh, that's, I got a bite, something happened here. And now becomes the challenge of don't keep scratching, right? Don't keep scratching it because it'll make it worse. You know that your skin will swell. You know that it will be more irritated and itchy and angry. As someone who's allergic to mosquitoes, I can tell you it's all downhill from there. But in the moment when you're doing that scratching, just for a second, it's bringing you relief, right? That's why we keep being tempted to do it because for just a little bit, we can stop the pain. But it doesn't last, and then you've made things worse. The same is true here. David has indeed gotten a little bit of temporary relief. 
But we will see that decisions not grounded in the reality of God's provision will eventually run out. In verses 5 through 12, we see David implements a plan to make an ally with Achish while also building the trust with the people of Judah. As we see in verses 8 and 9, David joined in the Philistines' work of raiding, but he had a different strategy. David would raid, destroy, and leave no witnesses in his wake. He was completely wiping these people out. The people groups he was attacking were Canaanites that had hostility toward Judah. So David was, on the one hand, gaining trust with Judah by attacking their enemies. He wanted to keep that rapport going, but leaving no witnesses so that no one could run back to Achish and report what was happening. And he was deliberately going outside, far enough away from the purview of what Achish could possibly catch on to. And then he would lie about it. When asked where he had been, David would say he's been fighting in the Negev, which belonged to Judah, when in fact he had not. At the same time, as building trust with Judah, he was trying to establish himself as an ally with Achish, as a means of protecting himself from Saul. He needed a safe haven, and he was willing to ride it out with the Philistines. But as we have seen just a few chapters earlier, this sin of trying to save oneself, trying to act outside the provision of the Lord, may temporarily work, but it always leads to more problems. Have you ever tried to play two people at the same time? My oldest daughter tried this when she was about four years old, and I was very pregnant, and she had caught on to how pregnancy cravings work, like whatever it is that mom wants, she's probably going to get. And she walked upstairs and told her dad, mom wants to go out to eat today. And I heard it happening, and I texted him, hey, hold on a minute, that's not exactly how that went. Next thing I know, she comes up to me and she's like, hey, dad says put your shoes on, we're going out to eat. (laughs) Now, I have to give her credit for trying, because that's pretty smart for a four-year-old. But what she should have done was just ask us to take her out. But just like my daughter, David is going to find himself stuck between the two people he's been trying to play. Chapter 28 opens and it says, in those days... The Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Uh Uh-oh. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay. Achish trusted David's ploy. He has built that trust. His plan worked but a little too well because then he is called on to go fight against Israel by his side. And David seems to agree. He even makes David his bodyguard, completely failing to see that David and his men still pose a threat. Don't these first few verses of chapter 28 seem kind of like the end of a Thursday night drama, like cliffhanger till next week? Well, I'll tell you what, this is going to be it for us because there's no resolution on this predicament in this chapter for today. Our text will end this here for now, so stay tuned to next week to see what happens. Verse 3 says, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. When Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. 
And his servants said to them, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So at the beginning of these verses, we are getting a reminder that, Saul, uh, that Samuel has passed away. The author is making sure we've got our facts straight for what's getting ready to come, because it's a doozy. We've got to make sure we know Samuel has passed. He has been mourned. He has been buried. His time is over. The Philistines are raising up an army against Israel again. Saul has gathered Israel together and starts to get nervous again. And just like we've seen him do before, Saul calls on the Lord, but not out of reverence, just as a tool to be used for his own gain. Let's read 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 to give us more understanding on this account. It says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a medium for guidance and did not inquire of the Lord. So what should we make of this account in 1 Samuel where it says that he called on the Lord, but the Lord did not answer? With 1 Chronicles saying he didn't inquire. I think what this is telling us is that Saul's inquiry of the Lord was all for show. It was going through the motions. Over and over again, Saul has shown us where his heart really is. And it's not with honoring the Lord. It's with saving himself and making a name for himself and using God as a pawn. But God will not be manipulated, so he doesn't answer. And Saul gets desperate, so he calls for a medium. We know Saul knows this is wrong because at the beginning of the chapter, he had put them out of the land. So he knows this isn't a good choice, but his desperation causes him to manipulate his way out of this scenario, even turning his back on what he knows is right. Okay, buckle up. Verse 8, it's going to get wild. So Saul disguised himself, put on other garments, and went, and he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So again, we know Saul knew better because he's disguised himself and gone under the cover of darkness. Notice he says, by a spirit, because he's no longer specifying what he wants from the Lord. He just wants anything in the spiritual realm to tell him that what he can do. Anything that's available to him, he's willing to do it. And even while this woman is dabbling in what some have called witchcraft, she knows her life is in danger. She's not protesting on principle so much as preserving her own life. But Saul makes an oath to her. Over and over, we see these words as a sign of a sworn oath, as the Lord lives. And when he uses these words, she knows he will see to it that she is not put to death for her disobedience. Do you notice how these oaths get sworn using these same words, as the Lord lives, as the Lord lives? Each of their promises, even those sown in direct disobedience like this one, is anchored on the life of the one true God. I think this is why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, stop doing that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your character speak for itself. Swearing on anything or in anyone's name is an acknowledgement that anything else that comes out of your mouth may or may not be true. So Jesus says, stop. When you say something, be truthful. Don't leave yourself a caveat for untruth. 
Trust doesn't need augmentation when it is built on a foundation of authenticity. I'm going to say that one more time. Trust doesn't need augmentation when it is built on a foundation of authenticity. Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. What is happening here? There are different schools of thought as to what's going on. As with anything that I will say when I teach, I want you to know I am happy for you to do your own study, do your own research. That's why we have discussion groups. If you land on a different side of this than I am, I am fine with that. Do not worry about me. I want you to have healthy discussions in your groups. If you land on a side that's dis in di disagreement with me, I won't be mad, I promise. So we're gonna dissect like two different ideas of what's happening here. There's two main things. Either Samuel did appear, or the real actual Samuel did not appear. Let's look at this. First of all, we're gonna look at if the real Samuel did not appear. Here's the evidence for this. Some scholars say, why would the Lord appear this way? Saul had already at least partially attempted to inquire of the Lord, at least by show. If God was going to answer him, why wouldn't he have answered in one of the typical ways that they were used to? Another thing is, this is a strange place for God to have performed a miracle. Responding to a medium, the use of which God has repeatedly condemned, would be an odd place for God to perform a miracle. It's inconsistent with what he says and what he does elsewhere. Another interesting piece is some scholars say Samuel's prophecy here does not come true. Spoiler alert for next week. Samuel tells Saul that he will die at the hands of the Philistines the next day. And the next day he does indeed die. But Saul dies by taking his own life instead of at the hands of the Philistines. A rebuttal for this would be to say that Saul was already on his way to dying when he chose to end his life. So the prophecy would be indeed fulfilled. Depends on where you land on that. The Bible does say that those who have passed cannot return to the land of the living. We can look to 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 23 for evidence here of when David loses his son. He says, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. But if it wasn't Samuel, then who was it? 
What did they see? Where did this come from? One, one possibility would be that a demonic spirit spoke to Saul. It could be that the medium did indeed conjure up a spirit, but it just wasn't Samuel. It could have been a demon impersonating Samuel in order to deceive them. It could simply be that Saul was hallucinating. The next verses will tell us that he had no strength in him because he hadn't eaten all day. And at a certain point of deprivation, we know that hallucination is a physical side effect. I think this is the least likely, though, because the medium also saw the vision, and she reacted to it. It could be that this appearance was somehow faked. Some translations actually refer to her as a ventriloquist, so it indicates that she is practiced in some type of trickery, some type of way that might allow, to, allow her to throw her voice and put Saul off from what's actually being faked. Now we can turn our attention to what if it really was the real Samuel that did appear. The evidence for this. First of all, a plain, straightforward reading of the text does lead us to believe this way. However, we know that there are plenty of things in Scripture that we do not take at their plain, straightforward reading. For example, when Jesus says, when your eye is tempting you to gouge it out, we know that he doesn't mean to physically gouge it out. We know he means remove yourself from the temptation. Another thing is the description of Samuel matches what we know of him. It says that he was wearing a robe of a prophet. This would have been the robe that, Samuel had ta- that Saul had taken and ripped in chapter 15, which could be why Saul recognizes him. Another thing is the medium's reaction. We don't know exactly what she was expecting to happen, but clearly what did happen was not it. She was terrified. She was actually saying that she saw a god, which could be her understanding of a spirit. Either way, it did not look like she was expecting the real Samuel to show up when she was practicing whatever dark art that she was doing, and she was shocked by what happened. Now, Samuel was a prophet. In his life on earth, Samuel was faithful to the Lord's teaching. So now as he is speaking to Saul, he speaks a prophecy that, as we just talked about, does indeed come true. A demon would not be able to speak a prophecy. They can only speak in deception and half-truth. So if it was Samuel, how did it happen? Did the medium conjure him up from the afterlife? And if she did, it seems that that would be some sort of demonic miracle. We don't have evidence in Scripture anywhere that Satan's, Satan or his demons can perform miracles. They don't have that power. So if it was Samuel, it was most likely by God's power that Samuel was allowed to appear. As we know, he is the one who performs miracles. The Lord is the one who holds the keys between life and death. So anyone passing between those realms would do so only with his knowledge and only by his power. Verse 20. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. 
She took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. No matter what happens, we know for sure that Saul was filled with fear, so much so that his body, which was weakened by lack of sustenance, falls flat out on the ground. And I can just imagine this lady who has just performed this service for him at the expense of possibly her own life, becoming increasingly worried about her own plight. Like, what is happening here? Could you get up off the ground? I can just see her being like, get it together. You've got to get out of here. You can't stay. And then she hastily puts together a meal for him. And honestly, that makes me giggle a little when, it, when you consider the amount of work that we're talking about. She starts from scratch on everything. She is killing the calf herself, draining the blood, butchering it, making the bread from scratch. I mean, she's doing the whole thing. And it says hastily, but I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, the way it reads, it feels like she just threw a hot pocket in the microwave, but that's really, <laughs> it's a lot more work than that. But I think her haste demonstrates how invested she is at getting Saul on his feet and out of her space. She succeeds because it tells us that he finally agrees to eat, and he then takes his leave that same night. And that's the end of the chapter. What a strange place to leave a lesson. But here's some things I want to I call us back to, because we've covered a lot of topics today. We've been all over the map. So let's talk about these things. There's six things that I want you to remember. I know that's a lot, but stay with me. The work of the Lord is not dependent on any one person ever. We can welcome righteous correction because it is a blessing from the Lord, and we can even praise him for it as David did. We can extend grace without inviting people back to the same access that they had before they wronged us. We don't need validation from our oppressors because the esteem of the Lord is more than enough. We cannot let discouragement and fear compel our decisions. It may lead to temporary comfort, but the relief will run out. And no matter what we think happened in this final bit with the medium, we know that the Lord will not be used as a pawn for our own gain. He will not be manipulated. I know that's like twice as many points as you would get from a sermon, and I'm sorry about that. But if you look at each of them, I want you to see at least one thing ringing true through each of them. The Lord God we serve is faithful. He's faithful as he continues his work through many generations. He's faithful as he provides loving correction for his people. He's faithful to flow grace through us while protecting us from others' harm. He's faithful to free us from our need for others to prop us up with, our, with their validation. He's faithful to see us through times of discouragement and fear to lead us to true peace. And he's faithful to his own character and will not be misused or misappropriated by men. As we consider the Lord's faithfulness, I just want to leave you with this verse from Deuteronomy. It's chapter 7, verse 9. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who, helps keep, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for your faithfulness. We continue to be amazed 
by the ways your faithfulness shows itself through your word. The facets of which we could not have dreamed up a faithfulness so wonderful as yours. It permeates everything you do. We trust your word because we know it is true. And I pray that we would honor you by living as people who revel in the freedom that your faithfulness provides. I pray now for the conversations that will be spawned from this reading of your word. Be honored in our discussion. Be present and let your spirit lead us in our learning. And it's in your precious name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed to your groups.